Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. When people say, ask me if I'm a Trump guy or a, or a Hillary guy, I just say, no, I'm a Ricky guy. That's just what I think. <laughs> Now I have a question for you. Do you do you pull the old Ricky Henderson and stand in front of the mirror naked and say, Ricky's the best, Ricky's the best? Did you ever hear that story about Ricky Henderson? Well, for, I have heard that story, and and, and Chad, <laughs> I, I, I do that at least three times a week. Well, that's important, I think, as you should. And, and I think, uh, you know, if you're going to be president of the United States, um, I think that that is uh, something that you should be doing and let, let, let the general population know that that's something you do to motivate yourself. Well, you know, so much of life is, is a state of mind, you know, and I find okay. that that helps me kind of find my balance in the mornings. <laughs> so, I don't know. I probably just killed what shred of electability I had by uh, <laughs> no, no, it's admitting more, that. This makes you more uh, relatable. <laughs> okay, so. good. Good. Who well, doesn't stand in front of the mirror and say their name? Yeah, I should have focus grouped that before I admitted it. But no, that's uh, why you're so popular. Is you don't focus group. You just say what you just say what you feel, and you don't waver. And you, you look, you you uh, you unabashedly, unapologetically love astroturf, and that's what we love about you. <laughs> that was Emmy Award-winning actor and director. Chad Lowe on last week's episode of the podcast discussing the Ricky 2016 presidential campaign and giving me his endorsement, uh, which of course is much appreciated. But I have to tell you, as the election season goes on, it's becoming uh, apparent to me that uh, I may actually be the best candidate. And that, that's frightening. Uh, I, I know very little about domestic policy. I know even less about foreign policy. But what I do know is that all ice cream in this country should be served in a mini baseball helmet. And we might even get crazy and start serving some of the ice cream in many NFL helmets. And you can read all about my ice cream helmet plan by going to super70sports.com. Not really. This is the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. My guest today is former Major League All-Star relief pitcher Don Stanhouse. And before I bring Don on, I want to mention that he and I are both going to be at the first ever Pass Pros Roadshow this Saturday, August 13th in Plano, Texas. Don is going to be joined by fellow former All-Stars Al Oliver, Ellis Valentine, and Jeff Russell. You can learn more about it by going to PassPros.com. You can find them on Twitter, at PassPros. I'm going to be there in the VIP room, and I have to tell you, there are a few VIP tickets remaining, I am told. Uh, Be sure to check that out and get in on this, because this is going to be an autograph show that is of a higher level than the normal experiences that you get with these, which is usually just being herded through a line and standing in front of the athlete for two seconds. Uh, Come back, see me, get in the VIP room, and uh, get to uh, have some conversations with these athletes and and, and just have a fun time, uh, which I'm certain it's going to be that. And as I said, my guest today is going to be there in Plano on August 13th. Come out and see uh, him, myself, and the other Major League All-Stars. Right now, let's go to the Super 70 Sports Hotline and bring on 1979 American League All-Star Don Stanhouse. Don, how are you? Good, 
Ricky. How are you, bud? Ah, oh, man, I'm doing great. Uh, really happy to have you on the show. Um, I, and we'll get to the we'll get to the full pack nickname, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> before we're done. That's one of my one of my favorite things uh, about you is that nickname. But uh, I want to go back to the beginning of your uh, beginning of your career. You know, you were drafted in '69. Uh, ninth overall pick, so obviously you were a you were a big deal uh, coming out of high school. Drafted by the Oakland A's, and could you talk to me a little bit about uh, going through the A's organization and uh, your development and your conversion into a pitcher? Well, back in I come from a little bitty town in Southern Illinois. It's called Duquoin, Illinois. And most famous for the home of the Hamiltonian, the sulky horse races and the fair every year. Uh, a little bitty high school. I mean, my freshman year, our football team had 12 guys. You know, they'd say defense and one guy to run in and one guy to run out. <laughs> and uh, and as it turned out, small high school, just there. I mean, all I did was play sports. And... As it turned out with the guys I played with and how we developed, I ended up being an All-American in football or an All-American in baseball from a little bitty town. So I was scouted quite heavily through high school. Said there were more scouts there than parents most of the time. <laughs> uh, but it was a unique experience. And then the state tournament that year, uh, actually I missed playing Jim Sunberg by one game. But that's when the draft took place, and they let me know that I was drafted by Oakland, and it was pretty exciting at the time. But I had already signed a letter of intent to play football at the University of Missouri for Dandy Vine. And when he found out I was drafted, one of the things he never allowed anybody to do was play two sports, but he called me and said, I'll tell you what, we'll double scholarship you to play football and baseball. And I said, now that sounds pretty interesting. So as it turned out, Charlie Finley was trying to sign me with Oakland, and Dandy Vine was trying to keep me at the University of Missouri. And eventually those guys started talking. And those two guys are the ones that negotiated my contract, actually. Really? And Dandy Vine called me one day. He said, there's nothing more. I'd love, love to have you play football and be here at the University, University of Missouri, but I negotiated a pretty good deal for you and Oakland really wants you so I think you ought to play pro baseball uh, and I respected the man very much of course and said yep let's, I go, I'll go do it as long as I get to play that's all that matters to me so I headed off with the Tri-Cities Washington and Northwest League and and uh, never really been away from home mm-hmm and when I got there, it was just like, wow. Well, everybody was an All-American. Everybody was All-State. Everybody was good. And <clears throat> lo and behold, I'd, uh, I I got to the ballpark a little bit late, and they gave me a, a uniform. I looked like Max Packton. I, <laughs> I didn't know who Max was at the time, but it was pretty dead gum funny. And, and my coach at that time, the manager's name was uh, Billy Herman. And I didn't, know, I didn't know who he was. So, but I eventually did, brother. I, I found out. <laughs> he, he said, uh, and they hadn't told you yet, but you're a third baseman. So I went out and took some ground balls to third base, and they hit me in the chest and the face, and I couldn't hit the first base and with the throws, and it was just a mess. And I was scared to death, and I started across 
they called me in for batting practice, and I started across the line, and it was like the foul line reached up and tripped me, and I fell down. And all these guys are looking at me in this Max Packing outfit, saying, that's our number one. And I stepped into the cage and never knew what to expect, but I hit the first five balls out of the ballpark. So, life changed. Uh, <clears throat> as it turned out, the season started and went on. I was doing fairly well hitting and I hit some home runs and I, I could drive in runs. I was good at that, but then again, I didn't let any fans sit behind first base because I really had a hard time hitting the first baseman, much less catching the ground ball. <laughs> so, I went on to set a record of four errors in one inning, and uh, as it turned out, my arm was very good. And we got into one of those marathon games where it was like 17 to 6 or something like that, and, and Billy, I said, you know, you're a pitching high schooler. So I said, yeah. He said, well, we got we got a couple innings left. Would you finish them off? And I said, I'd be glad to. So, got on the mound. And struck out six. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. Next day, I was back at third base playing, and the same thing happened down the road with three innings, and struck out nine. <laughs> and lo and behold, uh, they had called from Oakland, and uh, the reports had come out, and Billy said they'd like you to start a game. And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm play third base too, right?" And he said, "Yeah." So I started a game and I won one to nothing or two to one or something like that and I struck out fifteen or sixteen and and uh, all was good and they called back said well why don't you start one more game and kind of the same thing happened and then we were in Walla Walla Washington at a little pizza joint called the Cellar and I was eighteen years old and Billy Herman said I need to talk to you we sit down he bought a pizza a pitcher of beer and didn't have much. Say, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something. You'll probably go to the major leagues as third baseman when Sal Bando retires. We don't know when that's going to be. As a pitcher, you got a chance to get there in two or three years. And I said, well, I'm a pitcher. So, went on, led the league in strikeouts that year, still had a good year at third base, and the, the following year I ended up in Birmingham, Alabama, and pitched for Phil Cabaretta there. Had a fairly good year down there. Had a little arm problem. Didn't know what it was. But, I mean, it was just one thing after another. And in Birmingham, the lights were so bad. And I threw so hard that after I'd get loose, they'd have the catcher stand behind a chain link fence. And I'd throw into the fence because he couldn't see it. <laughs> that, so, that's, not a good, that's not a good omen for batters. You know? No, no, it wasn't either. It wasn't. I mean, you know. I remember I hit, uh, we had a, a catcher and, and a ball one time, and it was a day game, and I was bringing it, and he called for fastball. I threw it. He never got a shred of leather on it, hit him in the chest, and knocked him out. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just, I mean, is, is this the way it's supposed to be, boys? So I ended up uh, third year. I was in Des Moines. And with the Iowa Oaks, and Sherman Lawler was the manager, and had a uh, really good year there. It was on the all-star team, of course, playing with some ex-major leaguers at the time. And I was holding my own. And there was some promise going into spring training that, uh, you know, I would be that fifth starter on the Oakland team. And, you know, with Vida Bluebin, the MVP, Blue Moon Odom, Kenny Holtzman, and Catfish Hunter. And, and they all knew and, me. And, and Vida was holding out, too, right? Yep. 
And, yeah. uh, but uh, at the time, I mean, things were, you know, looking really good. And the team was, the Oakland team was awfully good. And spring training went real well. And, and the next thing I know is that, uh, uh, McNamara called me office and said, uh, uh, no, Dick Williams called me office and says, you know, uh, 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 we've traded you. And I said, what? And boy, guys, the players moved and weren't very happy about that. But I, tried, I was traded to the Texas Rangers for Denny McLean and myself and Jim Panther. Next thing you know, we were two young kids headed to the Florida to play for a brand new team in Texas. Wow, that that quickly. I, and and that trade didn't work out uh, very good for Oakland because Denny was Denny was pr- pretty much done at that point. You know, I think he won maybe one game uh, in, in Oakland. I'm sure they'd like to have that one back. Yeah. I, so so there. So like as you say, you get you get dealt to to Texas. Uh, it, new team. They they just left uh, Washington uh, from the previous year, and so you join the the Texas Rangers. And their manager uh, happens to be Ted Williams. Now, T- Ted's obviously, you know, one of the most famous players in baseball history, and and one of the biggest personalities. Uh, what was it like the first time you met Ted Williams? I don't know. I didn't know it wasn't a baseball historian at the time. I remember first when I, that day I got there, I turned to throw batting practice, and and um, I threw hard. And then my roommate was Peter Broberg, and Peter threw hard. But when I went out to throw PP, I couldn't keep the ball in the cage, much less throw strikes. And about, about that time, I'm done done throwing. I'm walking on the field, and Ted stops me and says, let me ask you a question. What makes a curveball curve? And I looked at him, and this 21-year-old smartass, and said, how the hell do I know? I don't have a curveball. <laughs> We started off on the right foot, of course. <laughs> but as it turned out, uh, you know, I was excited about being in the major leagues, and I never, you know, never thought in my wildest dreams that some of that stuff would happen, and, and certainly the, the career I had would happen to me. But it was pretty amazing stuff. I know that uh, first my first start in big leagues was against Chicago, and. Uh, there were some off-field activities that uh, kind of made me late for my first start. <laughs> <laughs> and I was nervous as can be, and I was in the training room and throwing up and nervous, and I'd, I'd never, ever been nervous about playing any kind of sport in my life. So I go out to warm up, and Lord knows I'm throwing, and I can't hit the catcher. I'm throwing bullets, and, you know, you got one guy trying to catch it. They got two guys chasing them down in the outfield because I, I was missing the catcher. But eventually I got warmed up. And one of the old veterans come up to me, Casey Cox. And he says, hey, look, Rick. I said, uh, you know, when you got there warm up, I said, them guys over there can hit. And they're going to be looking at you. And I said, well, yeah. yeah. He said, so... You make sure they are looking at you, and the first pitch you uncork, you throw it as hard as you can and hit the backstop. And I went, what? And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Trust me, this will work for you. So, first inning, 
Bottom of the first, we go out there to warm up. We get the mound ready, and I look over, and there's uh, Orta, uh, Pat Kelly, and Dick Allen all in the batting circle, and they're all just looking at me, grinding their bats, going, oh, boy, fresh meat. So I wind up, and I look to Casey, and I said, oh, okay, I might as well do this. So I wind up through it as hard as I could. Well, I missed the backstop and threw it up on the screen. <laughs> Lo and behold, I struck out the first three hitters. <laughs> so it was it was a start to it all. I had a pretty good start. I think we lost two to one, uh, but I like I think I had nine strikeouts in the game and and, and went on to pitch pretty good for what we had as a, as a really bad team. We had a good 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 pitching staff, but we just couldn't score any runs and had some really good guys on it. Though, you know, with. Uh, Don Mencher and Dave Nelson and Toby Harrow and Lenny Randall and Frank Howard, of course. I mean, who wouldn't remember him? But uh, it was quite an experience that first year in the major leagues. I mean, those those Rangers teams, the, the, a couple of things stand out for me about those first couple of uh, clubs that you played on in 72 and 73. One is, as you said, I mean, not good teams. You lost 100 games in 72 and lost 105 games in 73. But the, the managers that you went through, to, Williams resigns a, a, after 72, and the team hires Whitey Herzog. And... Uh, you know, that was Whitey's first uh, major league managing job. And uh, things didn't go great. I think he butted heads with uh, with the owner of the team, Bob Short. And at the end of the year, Short brings in Billy Martin. Uh, what are your memories of that 73 season playing for, for Whitey and then uh, playing for Billy Martin? Uh, well, Whitey got there, and like I say, it was his first, <clears throat> first go as a manager, so... Yeah, I wasn't anybody to judge. I was a player. I was hoping I was going to make the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went about his business the way it was. But, I mean, he was one of those, that, you know, as you go through his career, he's always had that little spark on his face. And uh, and he, he was always cracking jokes out of the side of his mouth. And he looked at us, and it was like, this is pathetic. But uh, I had, uh, I remember we were going to Oklahoma on a little road trip, me and Whitey, during the winter to speak at a banquet or something like that. He was going to do that, and, and, and I got caught speedy. And uh, he, he said, said Look, don't, don't worry about that. He said, come with me. So I opened the trunk, and we got all this memorabilia in the trunk. And so he gives the state policeman a bunch of memorabilia, and the guy lets us walk. So I'm going, really? This is how it works? This is good stuff. <laughs> We, but as it turned out, we were we were awful that year. Uh, I was terrible uh, from the get go, and uh, none of us were very good. To tell you the truth. Then at uh, then when Bob brought in Billy, Billy was uh, uh, no bullshit. This is what's going to happen, boys. And uh, he didn't take crap off of anybody. And I'm going to tell you, it was a different attitude. It was a different atmosphere. It was, you know, you will play at 110%, and we will win. Uh, again, I was not very good in that year, but the team went on to, to achieve. I think we finished second about eight games back of Oakland that year. And at the end of the year, you know, I guess they got so tired of me in Texas. I said uh, they were so mad at me that uh, – 
for, for some of the things that had happened, but they not only traded me out of Texas, traded me out of the country, and I ended up at the Montreal Expo. <laughs> All right, we got we get and we got to get to that because I mean that that's a that's a pretty huge deal, I would think, getting traded uh, right straight out of the country into a different league and everything else. I I, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of things about those uh, uh, Rangers teams before we get to uh, uh, Montreal. One is uh, in 73 when the Rangers drafted David Clyde number one overall in the entire draft and then basically brought him up for his major league debut. I think I think maybe he was about three weeks removed from his last high school start and they've got him on the mound in, in Arlington in front of a packed house uh, pitching in the, in the big leagues. What are your memories of that? <clears throat> well, I was in the bullpen at the time, but when they brought David up, I mean, he was under camera lights from the time he walked in the clubhouse until he walked off the field. I mean, from dressing and getting ready, and here's a high school kid, and he, he, he didn't know what to think. And he kind of had that old Texas draw, and it was kind of backwards a little bit, too. And, and uh, you know, but uh, he held his own. So at that particular time, he was brought his girlfriend from high school. Of course, she was dressed in pom poms, and <laughs> and we're all going, "Holy jeez, this guy really!" And uh, but he was an 18 year old kid. And as things developed during the course of the season, and, and especially with with Billy, and Billy was, you know, trying to treat him with kid gloves. But uh, I think he just hang around some of the veterans a little bit too much, and the next thing you know, he was knee-deep, and he was smoking and drinking, and it just wasn't, uh, he wasn't wasn't ready for some of that. Right. So I think that kind of, I think that kind of got to him, and, and unfortunately, he went on and struggled throughout his career. Uh, I see David every now and then, he is a, he's a great guy, and I did never know it by looking at him, but uh, he's got that deep, dark look in his eyes, you know, so I should have, could have, would have. But he'll talk baseball, and you can tell here's a guy that loves baseball. And he knows, just like I know, that uh, maybe things could have been better if I was better as a person. So, But uh, it was it was amazing to see that young kid walk out there and pitch the way he did in front of that crowd on that day game and uh, how he carried himself. It was pretty interesting. Uh, well, let's go to 74 uh, real quickly. You were talking about how when Billy came in, it was a, a change in the culture uh, of the team, and you guys picked up Fergie Jenkins uh, for the 74 season, and that, that certainly doesn't hurt anything. I think Fergie won 20, 25 for you guys uh, in 74. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk to you because the, the book that I'm working on, and I know some of my listeners are aware that I'm writing a book about baseball in the 1970s. Uh, one of the things that I'm definitely going to be focusing on in the book is 10 cent beer night, uh, in Cleveland in 1974, June the 4th, 1974. Uh, you guys were, were in town playing the Indians that night. And the short story is, is uh, a lot of people got drunk and things went haywire. Uh, what are your memories of that night? Because ultimately, you guys forfeited the 
forfeited the game because uh, the uh, uh, chaos on the field. Uh, what uh, what was your feel? Well, I mean, Cleveland forfeited the game rather. But what was your uh, what was your uh, uh, take on that night and sort of the insanity that that, that went on? Well, the, the, it actually started in Arlington where we had intense beer night. And, uh, of course, you know, Billy doesn't take any crap from anybody. And uh, Milt uh, Wilcox was pitching. He was kind of cocky at the time. And Leonard Lee Randall was hitting, and Billy yelled at him and said, lay it down first baseline and take him out. And so he did. And Wilcox <laughs> went over and picked up the ball and <laughs> When he cold cocked him, <laughs> you know, we had the biggest fight going on. It was, it was hilarious. And I'm going, really? This happened? And uh, what happened is they got back to the dugout, and uh, Dave Duncan was catcher for them. And uh, our fans were leaning over the dugout and poured beer all over him. And that started the fight. So when we headed to Cleveland, the, the picture on the front page the paper was a Cleveland Indian with a baseball glove on one hand and a boxing glove on the other. And it was 10 cent beer night. And we got there and it started in about the second inning when the father-son ran across the field and both they mooned the stands and everybody went crazy. Next thing you know, there are people running out there doing the same thing and taking their shirts off and, and the, the poor security officers at that time. I mean, in Cleveland and the old stadium, you know, they were as old as the stadium because they were all 60, 70 years old. They didn't catch any of these guys. So the next thing you know, you have this one guy runs across the outfield and Jeff Burroughs is playing right field and he tries to take Jeff's glove. Well, Jeff held on to his glove and cold cocked the guy and he hits the fence and before Jeff could hit him a second time, Mike Hargrove had gone from first base and already hit him three more times. <laughs> Grover was a mean boy, I'm going to tell you. And uh, all of a sudden we look out there and there's you know thousands of people on the field. Uh, through the fifth and sixth inning, we were in the bullpen. It was a little bitty place in the stands down the right field line. And they were throwing cherry bombs and firecrackers in there and they got us out of there. By the time we got to the dugout, I mean, it was... People were throwing stuff at us, but when all the people came on the field, we're all standing in the dugout, and Billy was just like, you know, the, the charge of uh, the Marines. He goes, let's go, boys. So a lot of us had bats, and we headed out to right field, formed a circle around the players, and lo and behold, here comes the Cleveland players to, to help out. And I'm going to tell you, they took a bunch of guys out. It was a mess. And of course, they forfeited the game, but as we got in the bus to go back to the hotel, everybody was hunkered down in their seats. They threw things through the windows. It was crazy. Man. We get to the hotel, first thing, security and the police, and, the, and our manager tells us, says, you guys, you need to stay in the hotel. We got police on every floor. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, and of course, right across the alley was a little joint that all the players went to. So I snuck out the fire exit, went over there, walked in, never didn't think there'd be another player in there. Half the team was in there. <laughs> we had the biggest party. It was, it was the Cleveland guys, 
and us. I mean, and at the time, Oscar Gamble's wife, I think, was singing at the place at the nightclub, and it was just fantastic. So it gave Cleveland kind of a black eye about baseball, about how, how things turned out. But we, we, when we came back the next time to Cleveland, the fans of Cleveland put on a show. There had to be 90,000 people in that old rickety stadium. It was like a circus atmosphere with bands and what have you. And it was kind of like, all right, 10 cent beer, nice over, boys. Let's go back to work. So it was, uh, it was something, you know, that, um, that I always remember, but, uh, wow. The things that go on in the game of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about Montreal. Speaking of the things that go on. I want to say. Let me, t- let me yeah. tell you this. Go ahead. You know, Fer- Fergie Jenkins is a good friend of mine to this day. Uh, he. He, he and I hung out a lot when he was there, and he tried to help me out as much as he possibly could to learn to throw a change up and do this and that. But that year he pitched was the most phenomenal year of pitching that you would ever witness. He should have won the Cy Young that year. He didn't. I'm looking but, at I'm looking at his record right here now. He he had tw- 29 complete games that year. I, that's, oh yeah. That's that's a couple of lifetimes for uh, well, hell, you, today. There wasn't anybody at our bullpen he wanted to take over. You crazy? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they had a guy named Stanhouse down there in the bullpen, you know. I mean. <laughs> that's right. And that's where they kept him, man. <laughs> yeah, Fergie, uh, Fergie was unbelievable that year. I mean, he, he walked 45 guys in 328 innings. So, I mean. Uh, it con- was unbelievable. When you, when you look at it. When Mike Hargrove, you know, nobody expected him to come up and, and as a rookie play the way he did. And then Burroughs was the MVP. So you, you could tell it was all headed in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I, just, I just wasn't part of that puzzle anymore. And so, so you know, here you are. You get, you get dealt to, to Montreal. And, I mean, obviously you're still – you're still a young guy in your your, your early twenties, early to mid twenties, and you, now you've been traded twice. Um, you know, I, I'm always curious what the reaction is because for most of us, you know, hardcore baseball fan like myself, you look at it and you think, oh my gosh, you know, to be able to play baseball for a living would have would have been the greatest thing, and I wish that I had that kind of talent. But one of the things that we don't look at is uh, the fact that you guys can just indiscriminately be shipped not, not only all around the country but out of the country. Uh, what's it like getting traded, and what goes through your mind when, you know, here you are two times already, you know, in your young career that, uh, you know, you've you've been told that you got to go someplace else, and if you want to continue your career, you there you, there you must go. Well, I don't, I don't think that... I don't think players really thought about it, any of that. I mean, it was just accepted. And, you know, until Marvin Miller came around, came along and said, hey, you know, you guys got some say-so here. I think it was just something that happened and you accepted and you moved on. But I also knew that in me that uh, that there was something there. It just hadn't come out yet. And uh, I'm going to tell you something. I wasn't about to quit, no matter what. And, but... When I went from Billy Martin to Montreal, well, you talk about an eye opener. Here I got to meet the, the little general. I mean, <laughs> big sergeant uh, Gene Mock, and I'm going. You know, he looks at my hair it's too long, sideburns are too long, wearing my socks too long. I'm going really, but that's the way it was. 
uh, he was tough. He and I didn't get along very well. Now, 70, 75, uh, you know, you, you pitched really well uh, in, in AAA. You had a ERA under two in, in Memphis, but you only uh, you only pitched in four games in Montreal. What was what was going on in in '75 for you well, as I'd a pitcher? Well, I'd gone to spring training that year, and they were thinking that I was going to be one of the starting pitchers, and so did I. But I mean, from day one, Gene Mock was trying to tell me how to pitch, and uh, he said, "No, you got to be able to throw that, that sinker on the outside corner." And I'm looking, I'm going, "I don't have a sinker." I don't even know what a sinker is. <laughs> I throw hard. And one thing led to another. And by the time the team broke, I was on my way to Memphis to play for Carl Teal. And I was not happy about it, but it is what it is. But when I got to Memphis, uh, I had a new roommate, Bill Kirkpatrick, never pitched in the big leagues, but one of the winningest pitchers in minor league history. And uh, we had an outfield of guys by the name of Cromarty Dawson and and Valentine, and, and I felt that I was part of something, a team then, and Carl gave me the ball, and when I started that season, I was hot, I, I threw hard, I finished almost all my games, I was getting people out, and I was winning games two to one, three to one, just like my, my rookie, my, my very first year in baseball, and I never really even thought about going to the big leagues, either, even though I was, I think I was five and one with a one or something like that ERA. And the next thing you know, I was called up. Uh, when I got there, uh, certainly weren't the warm and fuzzy greetings I thought there were going to be, but uh, uh, I did get to Montreal and, and, uh, and I was going to have my first start against the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and pitching that day was Bob Gibson. Mm who I knew because I was from Southern Illinois. So it was kind of an amazing thing at that time. But before my first start in Montreal, I got a letter in the mail that one of my best friends had passed away just before the game. Mm. His name was Harold Harold McKinney. He was a beat writer here in Texas. And they have have an award named after him to to this day. It's a Harold McKinney Good Guy Award. And he was an awesome friend. He he didn't care whether I won, lost, didn't matter. We were just friends. But I'd received that letter just prior to going out to warm up, and and it kind of it was a an eye opener. Reality kind of set in. So I took it a little bit more serious from that point until I started the game. So the first pitch I threw and the National League against the Cardinals. Lou Brock hit a line drive past my ear. Second pitch, he steals second base. Third pitch, Ted Sizemore hits 400 feet. I'm down to nothing. Ain't anybody out yet. I said, God, these guys are good. <laughs> but I thought on and I started, I started uh, the four games. I was in Philly and I had a no-hitter going in, in, the, uh, in the fifth. And in the sixth, my arm was hurt. And I called out Gene Mock. He came to me and said, what is wrong with you? I said, my, my shoulder's hurt. How could your shoulder be hurt? You, you get a shot out and you're pitching a no-hitter. I said, my shoulder hurts. So he took me out. We had words. 
And he had said, uh, we did a little bit of rehab in the major leagues, and, and, and it just wasn't responding. And, and again, he and I didn't get along very well. And he said, said, you know, if you don't do things the way you're supposed to do around here, I'll send your ass back to Memphis. And I said, well, do it. At least I'll know down there I have somebody I can talk to. And sure enough, the next day he sent me to Memphis. <laughs> wow. So, so you're so, but that and that was probably and that was probably like the end of your interactions with Mark because he was he was gone was after seventy five. Yeah, that was that was definitely it. And then uh, I went back down. I rehabbed the whole year. Uh, I ended up coming going back to Southern Illinois and working with the university that there at SIU with uh, the Doc Spackman who I'd known through my high school career. He had fixed all my injuries and he got me back to where I where I was supposed to be. Went to spring training, and they finally gave the job to Carl Keel. And Carl, uh, first big league managing job for him also, and uh, he kept me in spite of them wanting to get rid of me again. And uh, as it turned out, with uh, I responded very well that year. Steve Rogers had broke his hand, and, and I went on to be uh, one of the, the ace, aces with uh, Woody Fryman that year. I led the league most of the year in ERA. We had a terrible team. I ended up nine and twelve, and it was a good ERA. It had a great year, and I was very, very optimistic going into uh, the nineteen seventy seven season. So then, lo, lo and behold, during the, at the end of the year, Carl gets fired, and they hire Charlie Fox. Charlie Fox. I mean, I said, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> and but the year got over in a hurry, and it was done. And then going into the next year, that's when they hired Dick Williams. So Dick Williams sort of re-enters the, the, the picture for you in 77. And 77 is an, an interesting season in your career because you begin it in the rotation. In fact, you you started the first game, I believe, in the history of Olympic Stadium against, uh, yes, I did. against Steve Carlton. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Against Lefty, actually, I saw Lefty last year. He's doing well. And the first hitter was my buddy Jay Johnstone. <coughs> and so I told Jay, I said, "Not well, I said, Jay, you know, they'd be taking a lot of pictures." I said, "Take the first pitch, and we'll, and we'll go from there." He said, "Oh yeah, I'll do that." So I throw a fastball. He swings from him his rear end and tries to hit it a mile. I said, "I remember." I'll remember that foul. Don't worry. <laughs> I gotta. I've got to ask him about that. I, I, I've talked. Oh, to, he, I've talked to Jay a few, uh, a few times, and uh, oh yeah, he's he's a mess for sure. Well, there's <laughs> there's more as you get as you get down the road. Jay and I have some more interaction for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I, I've, and I've got to ask you about that, particularly. Uh, particularly as it involves uh, Tommy Lasorda, but but uh, oh, so, so seventy seven. Yeah, you started in the rotation, and l- later on in the season, you, you start working exclusively out of the bullpen and, and closing some games. Uh, how did that move happen? Because I believe, uh, you know, over the last couple of months of the season, you you had eight or nine saves, and uh, and basically from that point on in your career, you never started another game. Well, it. Did. It, uh, I, I just wasn't very good as the starter that year. Just nothing was clicking for me. Then you know, and you look around at that team, and all of a sudden you got a, you got a starting catcher that's pretty good in Gary Carter. 
you got a third baseman by the name of Larry Parrish that he should have pitched. And, you know, at first base, you got Tony Perez. Second base, you got Dave Cash. And then you got these three people in the outfield that I knew from before in Cromarty, the Hawks, and Ellis Valentine. So it wasn't about them guys learning. And I guess it was about them learning how to play together and scoring runs and doing the right things. But I just wasn't very good. And... I mean, everybody thought, you know, I was going to come out of it. I hit a grand slam in Chicago. I said, yeah, I hit a grand slam in the big league. He said, oh, that's really cool. said, bad part about it, I was pitching. I got beat seven to five. <laughs> well, at least you made it close. I mean, you know, yeah, that counts for something. Yeah, that was about it. But uh, we were in Chicago, and Dick Williams stopped the bus right in the middle of traffic, and stood out and said, Stanhouse, come here. And I went, oh, God, what have I, what have I done now? <laughs> And uh, he doesn't say a word to me. We walk down this little alley and, and walk up to a door, and I didn't know what it was. And he knocks on the door and slide it open. And hi, Mr. Williams, right here. And he opened the door, and it's a really nice restaurant. So we go in and sit in, and he orders a drink. He said, what would you like? And I said, well, uh, Mr. Boffman, the owner of the Expos, told me I should be drinking Crown Oil. And sure enough, I was. <laughs> And he doesn't say anything, and he looks at me, and he said, Stanley, you're not a very good starting pitcher. But from now on, you're in the bullpen. You're my sharp man. End of conversation. The next day, I was in the bullpen. And as it turned out, I went on from there. I mean, I think I was like one or two and eight at the time. And I ended up 10 and 10 with 10 saves and a good ERA. Everybody was optimistic. They finally had a, a closer that could do something. And, and at the end of 77 season, it was, things were looking up. And we were going to have a really good ball club uh, going into the next couple of years. So I was very optimistic at that point. And I kind of took on the closer role. And, and as I saw Dick Williams years later, and I'd ask him, and said, why did you make me closer? And he said, because I knew you would never quit. Mm. That's the attitude you got to have. And sure enough, I mean, I, as, a, as you go on, and, I mean, I didn't ever gave in to hitters. Not, I would go right after them all the time. Sometimes I'd do things a little bit unusual, but that was the nature of me. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is I'm, I'm looking at uh, at your August and September results in 77. I mean, you had a game where you got a win out of the bullpen. You pitched five and a third innings, one hit, shutout relief to get a win. You had a four-inning save uh, uh, against the Reds in August. And then, you know, I look at your record in September – Three inning save, two and a third innings, three inning save, two and two thirds inning save. I mean, you, you know, when you were a closer, it was far different than this, you know, hand the ball over and go out there and get me three outs. Uh, I mean, where, I don't think, I don't, yeah, I don't think we used the name closer back then. Right. Uh, not, not, not in, in the sense, but it was, in that year was the guy. The year that was kind of developed, but we were all pitching two and three innings. You know, Goose was doing it, uh, Raleigh was doing it, Suter was doing it, Herbowski was doing it, Gene Garber was doing it. We were all pitching two and three innings, or a couple of innings. They just never brought us in for just one out. 
I mean, and Earl certainly did. I mean, Earl just, he was a different person altogether. Well, all right, let's talk about that. So, so uh, here's the common theme. You're on a ball club that's looking pretty good. Things are coming together, just like they were in Texas in 74, and you get traded. So... This time, however, you're you're going uh, again to a to a ball club that is uh, uh, you know a darn good club. So uh, Earl Weaver, as I said at the at the start, I mean Earl Weaver called you full pack. A lot of my listeners, I'm sure, know the story behind that. But it, could you tell them how you picked up the nickname full pack? Well, it's supposedly. I mean, I, I, I say I never gave in to hitters, but. My philosophy was, you know, walk the guys that can hit you, and the other guys you should be able to get out. <laughs> Not a bad so, philosophy. So, uh, so notably, I walked a lot of guys. And so one thing led to another. And after one of the games that I'd gone through where it was a funky save, it took, a, you know, an hour for me to get three outs. <laughs> and we got the clubhouse, and, uh, and everybody asked, uh, I don't know why that he didn't take me out of the game. He said he had two cigarettes left. <laughs> and he, he said I hadn't I hadn't smoked the full pack yet. So the next day, the, the next day the headlines was full pack. So supposedly Earl Weaver smoked a full pack of cigarettes every time I pitched. <laughs> well, you know. Uh, it might have taken you a while to get some of those saves, but the important thing is you were getting them. I mean, 78, you, you, you were terrific. You had 24 saves, 289 ERA, and, I mean, you really established yourself as one of the best relief pitchers uh, in baseball. I mean, what were your what were your feelings on playing there in Baltimore? Because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Earl is a tremendously successful Manager and and you guys had a had a really nice lineup, a really good start and rotation. Uh, how did you enjoy playing in Baltimore? Well, the only thing I knew about Baltimore, I remembered them when I was with Montreal. We played them in spring training, and Boog Powell hit one off the wall, and they caught the ball, they threw the ball, they were defensively good, and they had damn good pitches. All I knew, but when after the '77 season, I stayed in Montreal where every previous winter up to then I was in South America playing baseball. I played baseball year-round for four, five, six years. <laughs> but I stayed there that year and did the PR for the club, and I was you know, a fairly colorful guy. I had my own radio show. I'd fill in for Ted Teven all the time. and um, I was known around Montreal, so I was traded as a big, big, big surprise. It was one of the writers that called me and told me I was traded. And um, I packed up that day and left Montreal and headed to Florida. During the course of that, that uh, the headlines came out in the paper about the trade. Uh, Earl was over in uh, Hawaii during the winter meetings, and uh, Earl was probably partaking of a few adult beverages. <laughs> and he had just ripped the trade in the paper. He said... It was, who is this Dan Heff? He was this Kerrigan and Renicky guy. What the hell are we doing? I mean, he just ripped us a new one. And I saw it. I read it. I didn't care. I just signed, my agent signed me to a two-year contract with Baltimore. I got some money finally, and it was 
cool and I mean I was excited about being there so I get down there and I rent, a part, rent an apartment at a country club and I pull in my black Cadillac open the door of the country club and this little bitty thing runs into my chest <laughs> about belly high and, and he had had a few adult beverages uh, quite a few and he looked up at me and said I don't know who you are and you hate you be at the ballpark on time tomorrow. And I went, who are you? I'm always, oh, crap. <laughs> oh, next day I get to the ballpark, the first guy I run into is Mark Blanger. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you are my idol. And he goes, no, you're my idol. I'll take care of you, don't worry. So one thing led to another and I'm late getting on the field or getting dressed to get on the field everybody's ready to go with me and I'm trying to strap on my uniform and out comes uh, Cal Ripken Sr. and he goes Franicky Kerrigan get in here so we go in the office and the coaches are in the office in there and and I was just smoking and drinking coffee and I know you guys are in the paper yeah this is the way it is and we're just going to forget about it all and of course Kerrigan said yes sir yes sir and Renke who was afraid to talk didn't say anything and they both walked out and I'm trying to get my uniform on and he looks at me and he starts cussing at me right away now I'm on base closer supposedly and he starts yelling at me, and I look up at him, and I call him a few names, and I'm trying, i got to get my uniform on and get on the field. I don't care what you say. A two-year contract, you're stuck with me, you little some of you. Done. And I get up, and I'm getting ready to go grab him by the neck, and Elrod Hendricks grabs me. <laughs> and he, he looks at me and says, this is not a good idea. You need to get on the field. <laughs> so I head out on the field. And the rest of it kind of goes from there. I mean, there was goofy things that happened along the way. Oh, always barking at me and yelling at me. And I wasn't getting anybody out in spring training. And we're running pitching drills one day, and Jim Palmer's standing right in front of me. And I was going, okay, here's, here's the situation. First and second, why out? And they're going to be in a buff plane. He's yelling. He's looking at Palmer and says, what are you going to do? And Palmer flips the ball to me and said, give the ball to him. You're the one that traded for him. And he walks off. <laughs> and uh, as I tell the story, that uh, Jim Palmer gave me the ball from then on. <laughs> and I, I, I saved a number of ball games for Jim. And uh, even with the lefty in the bullpen, he would yell at Earl and say, no, no, you bring in, you need to bring in full pack. So it was an amazing year. Every time I made a mistake, pitching, the defense picked me up. And then all of a sudden, you look around on that team, and you got some pretty good players and defenses, and Richie Dyer, not household names, but there's a guy at first base, Eddie Murray, is pretty dead gun good. There's a guy in right field, Kenny Single, is pretty dead gun good. And all of a sudden, the emergence of pitchers that like Scotty McGregor, and then Mike Flanagan, who wins this Cy Young, and then all of a sudden, it's a guy by the name of Dennis Martinez, and then a Steve Stone, and Tippy Martinez is the left guy. And all of a sudden, I'm a guy that was fortunate enough to, when you look at sports and you think about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, I saw that in playing with Texas and Montreal where we lost 112 games. And I saw the other side of it with Baltimore when we won 108 games. 
that every day we were going to win. So it was a real interesting time. Once you're an all-star, I mean, that puts you in a different category. That's a pretty good feather to have in your cap. It, it was, and, and, and really, I thought I should have made the all-star team in 1976 with Montreal. And it was between myself and Woody Fryman, and Woody was the old journeyman and one of the greatest guys you'd ever meet, but uh, they took Woody instead of me. That's okay, because I kind of felt like I arrived at that time. But when when Kenny Singleton and I made the All-Star team in 79, it could have been a lot of different guys, but I'd ripped off, I don't know, 10 or 12 saves at the, at the beginning of the year. I had gotten out of a lot of bases loaded jams with nobody out that year also. And it was kind of unusual that, that it always came up that way. But uh, we were actually in Seattle at that time, so I ended up spending the week in Seattle for the All-Star game and, and, and team. But as we went into the All-Star clubhouse that time, that day, uh, Kenny Singleton and my lockers were right across from the Boston lockers. And in there was Yastrzemski, Fisk, Rice, Barry Remy, Clyde Evans. I mean, it was just like the whole Boston team. They had a heck of a team, and they were right across from us. And uh, it was a good atmosphere with Reggie being there, and, of course, Greg Nettles, uh, Jim Kern, and I were the two short guys that were on the team at that particular time. And as the game progressed, and Nolan Ryan started the game for for them, I mean, it was, I mean, it was what an atmosphere it was. And as the game progressed, we got to the late innings, and uh, I was warming up, and along with Ron Guidry, who won the Cy Young that year, I think it was, or 78. Right. And uh, Bob Lemon was the manager, and here we go again, the base is loaded, nobody out. And they all knew that that's the situation that I thrived with Brian at the beginning of the year, and I thought for sure I was going in the game. And he put Guidry in the game. Uh-huh. And we end up. We end up losing, but uh, and then Dave Parker's the MVP. But and I get to the clubhouse. Kenny Singleton got a token pinch hit at bat, and it was like the Yankees and Bob Lemon just uh, kind of wanted to stick it to us. And so I get to my locker, and, and Kenny knows that I'm pissed. So he goes to get us an adult beverage, and he sits down and he looks at me. He said, "Stanley," he said, "Now we're going to take care of more important things." And we looked across at the Boston Red Sox, who we were just getting ready to go see in a four games. And they were quiet as can be. And we went into Boston for four games and waxed their ass and never looked back. You guys were so good that year. You took care of business. Uh, I believe you guys swept the, the Angels and the ALCS. And then you uh, you wind up taking a three one lead on Pittsburgh uh, in the in the World Series. How does it feel to come so close to have such a dominant club? Because you guys were really probably better than the Pirates, uh, honestly. Well, I think yeah, I think on paper when you looked at the pitching staff for sure. Um, but being up three to one and knowing that you got. Flanagan, McGregor, and Palmer pitching for you, you think you're going to win one game. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't work out that way. And years later, when I saw Chuck Tanner, and Chuck was a good friend, and um, 
and, and you know, congratulations and all that good stuff. But uh, I said, you know, you guys did it. He said, I said, he said, well, the whole idea was try to keep you out of the game with the lead. And I never pitched with the lead. So, but their pitching just come out of nowhere. I mean, uh, it was when Rooker could pitch seven innings out of bullpen and shut you down, you know something's up. But it was a fantastic experience. It's not something that, you know, I, like you said, when you look on there, it's one of, on sports, it's one of those, uh, uh, it plays every month, you know, the comeback. And they never see anything like that in sports, and kudos to them. But uh, at the end of it, it was kind of like, uh, a deep breath, the season was over, and, and my time in Baltimore was over. Well, you know, it, within you know a, f- a few weeks of, of that World Series, uh, you, you signed as a free agent with, with the Dodgers. Uh, I mean, how how tough of a decision was that for you, uh, you know, deciding where to go? Because for one thing, I would think, you know, you mentioned Marvin Miller earlier in the conversation. I mean, you've, you've been traded, you know, three times at that point in your career, and then finally you've got the uh, the tenure to be able to control your own destiny for the first time. I mean, i got to imagine that was a pretty good feeling to, to be the guy who was in charge of where you were going to play for a change. Well, it's like... It was like everything in my baseball life. It wasn't planned. And uh, uh, my agent and still one of my best friends, Cookie Lazarus, out of Montreal, was uh, was negotiating at the time. And they had the draft, what they called the draft back then in New York City. So I had met him in New York, and he had brought one suitcase for me. And the feeling all along was that I was going to end up with the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, Harvey King was the manager, and he was a good friend, and, and they had followed me, and I'd had good success against them. And there was just everybody in the papers. Everybody thought it was going to be Milwaukee. So a good friend of mine in Montreal had sold me a full-length Alaskan wolf coat. And my agent brought it to me in New York. So there's pictures of me in Central Park in New York in my coat, and I'm having way too much fun. And... Um, so the draft goes out, and I'm a free agent, and, and he's talking to them. And, and I head back to uh, – actually, I come to Texas to see a guy I went to high school with, ended up being my best man in the wedding. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was sitting in my future wife's apartment. Ah. And, uh, and Cookie called me and said, you won't believe what happened. And I said, well, what? And he proceeds to tell me he's negotiating. He's got two phones in his in his office, and he's got them. One, he's got a D on. The other one's got a B on. And so he's thinking he's got us, the guys done with the Brewers, and I'm going to get about $1.7 and the Dodger phone rings. And it's Al Campanis. <clears throat> so... Cookie picks up the phone and acts like he's talking to the Brewers. And he goes, yeah, I'm standing out. It's really interesting coming to Milwaukee. looks like we're pretty much there right now. And Al Campanis said, whoa, 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 whoa. This Al Campanis was done. What do you mean you got a deal done with the Brewers? How much do you need? And he goes, well, well right now we're at about $2 million. And he goes, I'll give you 2.1. So I, so I don't know if that'll mean anything. What do you want? So next thing you know, it's it, 
we, he asked for two points. So I'll give you two one, two one right now. And Cookie goes, I'll take it. So Cookie calls me in Texas and tells me the story of how he did the old switcheroo. <laughs> and uh, and I'm a doctor. So I, I get there, and the previous year they hadn't uh, they hadn't had anybody to bullpen. Charlie Huff was kind of trying to do it for them with the knuckleball, and and uh, but. When I got there, I looked at that team. Geez, Jaeger, Say, Russell, Lopes, Garvey, Rick Mundy, Reggie Smith, Dusty Baker, oh, Don Sutton, Jerry Royce, and of course my favorite guy, Jay Johnstone. <laughs> and and um, it just didn't work out. Uh, I hurt my back in spring training. My arm was terrible all year. Uh, I couldn't do anything. I was out most of the year. And still the fact I had more wins and more saves than anybody in there in there in the pen the year before. But uh it I just didn't believe Dodge Blue like Tom. <laughs> Who did? You know? I mean, uh, t- listen, t- t- tell me I you know, I remember in fact the first time that I ever talked to uh to Jay Johnstone, I told him this. When I was in high school, we were reading some some literary classic that I had no interest in. I think it might have been The Good Earth uh, or, or, or something. And so I had a copy of, a paperback copy of one of Jay's books. And I, oh, you, you mean temporary, <laughs> temporary Insanity? I, yeah, I had to either, it was either Temporary Insanity or Over the Edge. I think it was Temporary Insanity. Well, I took it and I stuck it inside of the book that we were supposed to be reading. And so I'm sitting there in high school in class, we're having this quiet reading time, and everybody else is reading The Good Earth, and I'm reading about you and, and John Stone and, and Jerry Royce and, and uh, you know, the, the stuff that you guys were pulling. I mean, could you tell me, I mean, you weren't in L.A. that long, but you guys definitely had some fun with Lasorda. I mean, uh, some devious minds there uh, between you and John Stone. Oh, it's just, we got... We would get in trouble for doing stuff. It was Jay, myself, and Jerry Roy. It seemed like we'd be we'd be right in the middle of something all the time. And uh, and in the book itself, the fold-out picture shows the picture of uh, the three of us, and we got t-shirts on and on our long johns and everything. But when we went to take the the team photos that year, I mean the individual pictures for the Dodgers that year. The three of us got in there, and we didn't. We took our clothes off. We did nude shot, <laughs> but uh, they wouldn't let us have it. But we did. That's the one we did with uh, with the cigarette in my mouth and everything. And that's the <laughs> that's the fold out in the middle of the book. Oh, but, you know, Tommy was so mad at us about everything in spring training. You know, on St. Patty's Day, the three of us went to his room and took everything out of his refrigerator and painted the green and put it back in there. <laughs> and then and. Garvey, who was the nicest guy in the world, we painted all his bath green, and he was mad at us, and he shed a tear, and oh, it was just a mess. Then Jay and I got mad at Jerry one day and went out in right field, and we took a bucket of tape with us, and we taped him up like a mummy and left him there. And let's see, what was the other thing? Oh, uh, I love how you're just telling these stories. You just—it's like so matter of fact. You're just going from one to oh, the yeah, other, yeah. like. <laughs> You gotta understand, this is not premeditated. We just knew we were gonna do this. <laughs> and that's the that's the Sparky and the Big Red Machine came to town one time, so we 
we stole one of the the, the little uh, uh, infield guys' wagons that had all the dirt in it, and the three of us get in the back of it, and the guy takes us around and parks right in front of the bench while they're all sitting there, and we moon all of them. <laughs> and, and then we got so mad at Lasarda because he used to have he used to bring all the celebrities into his locker room and he'd tell them how he managed beautifully because we won that day and that Stanhouse was terrible because we lost that day. So we got tired of him admiring other people and the three of us got three big blow ups of us <laughs> pictures. And he must have had a hundred, two hundred pictures in his office autographed to him by everybody. You know, him and Don Rickle, I think they were uh, they were brothers from a different mother but uh, we took every picture out of his office and we put the picture of the three of us on three walls <laughs> and oh. he, he he comes to get us he's so mad at us about everything and but it was it was fun you know it, it, it was a lot of fun uh, uh, Jay was a, a terrific friend still is to this day I mean uh, Jerry you know it, it it was an amazing, amazing time. When I go back to think about how things really turned out for me, if if you look going back to the the World Series, we're up three games to one, and I lose the World Series. In 1980, I have a an injury short season, but at the end. I'm out in the bullpen with a guy by the name of Fernando Valenzuela and, and Steve Howe, and we go through the whole year, and we have a four games left, and they're all against the Astros, and they're up on us by three games. We win the first three. We lose the last game of the year not to make the playoffs. 1981, strike short in the year. I'm not with the Dodgers. They win the World Series. 1982, I make a comeback with the Orioles. We go the whole year, go into the last series against the Milwaukee Brewers. They're up two games with three to go. We win the first two, lose the last game of the year. We don't go to the playoffs. Mm. In 1983, I'm in minor leagues. The Orioles go back and win the World Series. So I was a day late and a dollar short a number of times. Yeah. But uh, it was fantastic to be part of all of that. Had so much fun. Probably had too much fun. But I wouldn't change a thing. Along the way, great things happened to me. I mean, think about this. this my first year in the big leagues, I made $12,500. I ended up getting to be experienced free agency and make a little bit of money. My first year in pro ball, I some of the blacks couldn't eat in restaurants. My best friends, they'd run through a wall for me. Along the way, I met my wife. I've been, been married 35 years. Three beautiful kids, two great grandkids, and I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not a, not a bad life, Don. I think all in all, you came out okay. It's been great. I mean, you know, I've got great friends out of baseball. And like I said, I see Fergie and Raleigh and Goose all the time. And and uh, it, it's just been a blast. I mean, when you think about it, I look back, you know, 
I played with or against or been coached by or against 70-plus Hall of Famers. That's remarkable. And, and they all know me. That's good. That's So So listen, tell me about the this past pros uh, road show that we got coming up. You know, I uh, I just did an interview with with Ellis Valentine uh, not long ago. He was a guest on the on the podcast, and we were talking about what he's doing with past pros. And now we've got this uh, the memorabilia show coming up, and I believe Plano, Texas, on August the thirteenth. And uh, Ellis is going to be there. Al Oliver, Jeff Russell, and yourself. Um, you know, this sounds like it's going to be a blast. It, it, it'll be, you know, it'll be glad. I see, I see Russell all the time. And, uh, Ellis is back here in Texas. And we have a group here in Texas called the Texas Rangers Legacy Group, which is anybody that played one day for the Texas Rangers. And with about 80 guys in that group, <laughs> we're always doing something here in the community, whether it's golf or schools or fields or clinics or something like that. So we're involved. So I, I see Ellis, and with he being my good friend from the Montreal days uh, he had mentioned it to me and I said you know whatever you need brother so I'd like to be part of it so one thing's led to another and uh, it's been a slow go here for about a year or so trying to get it established but I can tell you that they've worked really hard to get to this point and with this first card show it's just one of those things that it works and uh, it's the guys are great see again but when you get our age when the fans come out and they remember and the younger kids are still collected it's one more avenue for us to be talking to them about the good things that happen in the game of baseball so it's a pleasure and an honor to be part of the past pros with these guys and i'm really looking forward to it well i'll tell you what i'm uh, i'm gonna come down i got a buddy that lives in dallas and uh i was uh, talking to ellis and, and his partner colin greer and uh, uh i'm gonna come down for this thing and and see you guys and uh i'm gonna have to uh, i'm gonna have to bring a baseball i i, I i'll tell you what I'll, i'm gonna tell you what i want right now I, i'm gonna i'm gonna bring a baseball for you i want i want 79 all-star and and full pack inscription can i get that i think we can do that all I right can do that. Well, i'll have some things i'll probably have some pictures and things there so um i'll get you one of the standing man unusual one of the full pack pictures you'll like that outstanding outstanding man i'll be proud to uh, uh put that on the wall Yes, better bring an AC with you. It's hot. <laughs> I was down there last year, and uh, you, you're not kidding, man. I, you know, I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, we, we got some heat in Kentucky, but I think I've been up here in Chicago for so long that uh, my my sensitivity to the heat. I was, uh, you know, uh, not not a fan of the of the uh, weather, Houston particularly. Yeah, the, I, I was wearing. Oh. I, I was wearing the air like a like a second uh, set, you know second skin. <laughs> oh, it was. You know, it, um, Houston's Houston's very humid. Dallas is a little bit more dry. Today, about ninety nine degrees. Heat index supposed to be one hundred and eight. Just an average day. <laughs> <laughs> just another day in paradise. Yep. Guess I have to. A good day to go have a cold one at Hooters. <laughs> is there, there's never a bad day for that, right? Uh, you bet. <laughs> right, come and see us. Come and see us. We'll, we'll give you some Texas hospitality. All right. Thanks, Don. You have a good one, my friend. Yeah, you too.
All right, you better. Just a pleasure to have Don Stanhouse on the podcast today. My thanks to him. Looking forward to seeing him in Plano, Texas this Saturday, August 13th, and hope to see you there as well. My guest next time is Gar Ryness, the batting stance guy. You may know him from YouTube. You may know him from MLB Network, but he is a man who has what he proclaims to be the least marketable skill in America. It also happens to be one of the most entertaining skills in America. If you're a baseball fan, he can mimic the batting stance of any player that you want to name, and he can do it flawlessly and hilariously. We'll be talking about the unique position he occupies in the baseball world, what players from Derek Jeter to Pete Rose have had to say about his work, and a heck of a lot more. So until next time, I'm Ricky Cobb, and you've been listening to the Super 70 Sports podcast.